Hi there. Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to tell you about an issue of Design Museum Magazine we're working on and how you can help. The issue is called The Policing Issue, How One of the Most Powerful Institutions Functions by Design, out later this spring. You can help this special issue come to life via Kickstarter. With your support, it'll feature 16 artists, designers, researchers, and writers of color paid for their contributions to this special edition of the magazine. The policing issue will explore the relationships between design and policing, from the physical objects currently in use by officers, to the ways in which design perpetuates unjust practices rooted in policing. And we'll even talk about the design of the protest movement. Help us raise $20,000 between March 1st and March 30th to help make this special issue happen and help us make important impact with this content. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on support our Kickstarter campaign to learn more and make your pledge. Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who is an expert in their field, and we interview a guest about their work in design because design is everywhere. And so are we. This week, we're talking about bringing design stories to life through audio. We started this podcast about a year ago to bring design stories to a broader audience and showcase the transformative power of design. And since then, we've constantly been learning and growing, chatting with interesting guests about how the world around us is changing and being designed in new ways. Joining us today are two experts in design storytelling. As guest co-host, we have John Campbell, the head of innovation capability at EPAM Continuum. And our special guest is Debbie Millman. Debbie has been the host of Design Matters podcast for the last 16 years. I'm excited to learn more from them about how they translate these visual stories into a non-visual medium. Before we dive into all that, some quick news from the Design Museum. We are beginning a live podcast series where each month listeners will be able to listen to the podcast as we record before the episode airs. So a live show. This is a chance for the audience to ask their questions live for our guests and be part of the edited podcast episode as well. Join us for our March live podcast recording on March 19th at 12 p.m. Eastern time. We have Kate Muse and Cliff Selbert from SEGD. We'll be talking about experiential graphic design from wayfinding to architectural interiors. There's just so many places we can go. This is a member-only event, so be sure to get your membership, which includes a subscription to Design Museum Magazine, and then reserve your ticket. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and then click on events. And with that, on to this week's topic. When we decided to launch a podcast a year ago, I converted my closet into a home recording studio, which I am sitting in right now. We had to adapt to these crazy times and transform our homes into these like podcast-ready spaces. Ryan, our technical producer, and I had to learn so much. We learned about new equipment, new software. We're connecting with our guests on Zoom. And each week we meet with designers around the world to bring more design stories to listeners. So I'm constantly intrigued by the process and craft of design storytelling. I think on this episode, we'll get a little meta here and we could talk about audio storytelling on our audio design podcast. I'm getting a nod from my guest. I'm excited to chat with John Campbell, who I actually had a chance to be interviewed by for a podcast he worked on called The Resonance Test. John is the head of innovation capabilities at EPAM Continuum. He has his bachelor's in journalism from University of Wisconsin and his master's in design methods from Chicago's IIT Institute of Design. He's taught at Tufts University's Gordon Institute, Massachusetts College of Art and Design, and Harvard University. John's role immerses him in brand experiences and innovation. 
He becomes intimately familiar with the design process and is very familiar with the value of storytelling. John, welcome to the show. Sam, thanks for having me. Yeah, as I mentioned, like we haven't chatted in a while. This is it. This is a good way to get together. Also, I feel like uh, if you're into college football, this is like a home and home. You uh, you came on uh, the resonance test and, and now uh, you kindly had me over. So appreciate it. Yeah, I'm returning the favor because that was such a fun conversation. So I wanted to start. I'm really interested. I didn't actually know this when I was on the resonance test, but you know, you have this you have this background in journalism. And so I'm interested in kind of this jump you made from journalism into design. What was that like? And when did you first sort of like marry those two things sort of like in your mind? Yeah, it's a great question. And actually, I hadn't thought about it deliberately until till we started talking about about doing this podcast. But at the time, it was deliberate, the kind of tra- the, the transition. <laughs> but yeah, I think, you know, what's, what's interesting, I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do in, in undergrad, and I kicked around a couple of different majors. Um, and the one thing I kept finding myself doing was using my, um, my school book money to go buy all the interesting books in the, in the bookstore. So I, you know, went and find the interesting books in, in the English department or in poli sci or whatever, and would start reading those and kept thinking, well, what could I do that allows me to read and write more? And there's the obvious like English literature, but um, I felt like some pressure to have some kind of a uh, avenue for a guaranteed job coming out of it. When I kind of squint at the the jump I made from journalism to design, the, the there's a couple of things that have a through line there, and the one is is obviously being interested in people and like what motivates them and how things happen, and why they do the things they do, and kind of digging at that. Um, and uh, the second is the storytelling. I've always loved stories. Mm-hmm. I've always been a, a crazy, you know, big reader. And uh, so then figuring out how do you understand people and what they're dealing with and kind of the underlying whys behind something, not just the kind of surface level. And then how do you put that in a story that people want to read? And I think that's a lot of what I do still to this day. So mm-hmm. let's get right into it. Cause like we said, I love the residence test and it's still going, right? I think it has a new host. Yeah, it's it exciting. Is. Well, we have, yeah, we do, um, you know, Ken Gordon, who produces it, uh, and Kit Palalis, the, the, the engineer on it, um, have done a great job. And we have this nice rotating model, different guests, different hosts. So it's been, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's, it's cool. You guys do some, some cool stuff. So, I mean, design is so visual. It's so tactile, right? And here we are, you know, working in audio. And so thinking about the residence test, thinking about you know, any of your work, how, what's been your strategy to like translate design stories into a very non-visual format? Right. For me, it kind of starts with, I guess, going back to like my journey to design, which was, you know, I think coming out of school with a journalism degree was, you know, you think of the obvious kind of visual design, right? So graphic, interior, architecture, automotive, fashion, and I think, you know, when I, when I ended up quitting, I, I had worked at Harley Davidson and when I discovered design, I was there and I quit and went to grad school is when I realized that you can take the mindset, the skills, the methods of design that is historically in a very visual um, arts kind of a approach and apply it to innovation, to business problems and the like. And so while the storytelling component, visual and, and non-visual is still critical, I, I still have kind of this abstracted idea of design as a, as a thing you can apply to almost any endeavor in the world, which is essentially the mission of design museum too. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But you're right. Like, how do you, how do you tell that story in the right way? And how do you do that when, you know, whether it's, it's, it's audio or or other, and how do you get that to, to manifest into the right experiences in people's minds is a challenge. Yeah. I wonder, and I'm actually, I'm thinking about our, literally our previous episode and we were talking about like, how do you get the value 
of design. And and one comment I made, and it was kind of like, I don't know, a eureka moment maybe for me personally, which because I, you know, working in design, I just found that I had a lot more success when I told stories about what I was doing. And that's what we were kind of chatting about, like, and I'm interested in your take on this of like, do designers need to like slow down and like take what might be instinct, right? What people do, what looks good, what's going to work and just slow that all down and explain it. And that is audio, right? Like explain it to other people. Have you found that? Totally. So I, I you know, I, um, for, for years I didn't cook. So I ate out every night, you know, obviously thank goodness I figured that out before the pandemic. <laughs> we can't go out. <laughs> And so I'd, you know, sit by myself reading a book, eating, you know, at, at the bar in a restaurant or something, and always ended up chatting with someone next to you. And then they would say, so what do you do? And it was like, oh man, here we go. Because do you say, well, I'm a designer. And then they go like, what kind? Uh, or do you say, um, I do innovation. And then they inevitably go, oh, I have an idea. You know, will you, you know, can You're you right. help me? And so instead of having like a succinct thing, like, oh, I design experiences or I help figure out new products and services. Like, what is that? That's so broad, right? I ended up, you know, going towards specific stories. So sharing some of the, the, the types of projects I've worked on or some of our well-known case studies, you know, inventing the Swiffer, everyone gets that. Right. right? right. Um, so you're right. Like that, like using particular examples, I think is super important to them. Yeah, that's what kind of like breaks through of like, oh, I know I know that I can like relate to that. Then you can kind of talk about what that means and how you like got there. Uh, I know that story. Do you want to tell a little bit of the Swiffer story, actually? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it, it's a, it's a little dated now, but because it, you know, has has spent 20 plus years kind of ending up in everyone's home, it is such a nice shorthand for it. So that, that was a challenge where uh, Procter & Gamble was looking to create uh, new, uh, new products. They're looking to, to, to grow in some new categories. And one of them was floor cleaning. Uh, they'd actually had five challenges at the time and we got a couple and a couple of our competitors got some of the others. And so one of ours was, how can you rethink floor cleaning experience? And, um, so we went out, watched people clean their floors, uh, saw what worked, what didn't, uh, noticed a couple of really interesting, you know, insights out of that. And out of that, we ended up with what effectively became a, you know, um, an electrostatic, you know, diaper on a stick. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, it completely reinvented people's habits, uh, added a little bit of ease in their life, a little bit of delight. I mean, how many mops prior to that would you find, you know, people posting their, themselves hugging their mop, right? But right. there's <laughs> pictures out there of people hugging their Swiffer and posting it. So yeah, so that that's a great example then where, you know, you're chatting to someone, they're like, well, what do you do? Or, you know, everyone's parent only knows what they did as their first job or, you know, that old saying. Yeah, yeah. And so to say like, well, you know, Swiffer, you know, someone had to create that. I also think that's one of the great things about design to new eyes is that it makes people realize that all the things in the world are fungible and that like, oh, wait, someone made that decision, right? Someone had to create that. So it's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a moment. I lo- I'm, I'm, Love continuum, that EPAM continuum's work. I, part of that story too, I often use when I'm talking about uh, design research. And I know I'm probably gonna get this wrong, but uh, the team had like visited people's houses and kind of like, how do you use your vacuum? And like, <laughs> they were interviewing one woman and she said, well, I don't really use my vacuum. And then like out of the corner of her eye, she saw like a, like a little dust pile and like got her vacuum while they were there. <laughs> and like did, it, yeah, did yeah. it really quickly, but it was like a big ordeal to like get the vacuum out and all this stuff. and. That's right. Like you're uncovering these insights 
through that work. And so that, yeah, I use that little story around like, you know, you experience other people's lives and how they use things. The other great insight um, you reminded me was we paid all these research participants, you know, in advance, we said, we're going to come to your house. We're going to watch you clean, blah, blah, blah. And we said, please don't clean before we arrive. And they're like, sure, sure, sure. And you're paying them. You expect them to kind of do that. Every, every single one, 100% of them when we arrived had just finished cleaning their house. And I think if you were, you know, there might be a lot of people that get annoyed by that, right? But as a designer, there's a, that's an input, right? Like, well, why are people doing that? And you realize that a clean home's a reflection on them. They want to have a healthy, clean home when there's guests. And that becomes an insight then that you can work off of. So that's kind of the value of like telling what, what we do as designers Let's talk about the business value of storytelling. I imagine you're using stories to like win clients, to kind of like I was saying, to kind of like bring them on this journey. How does that work? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think, you know, there there's a, f- a few ways that we use. I mean, we use storytelling all the way through the process from like initially engaging a client all the way through to bringing it to market. Um, but but there's, a, there, there's a few ways that I think, you know, are really powerful that that I think are important. I think the, the first is, um, this idea of like socializing the process, right? Because if, if, if the business doesn't believe in the process and how you're doing it and how you're arriving at your recommendations, you know, that that's just not going to, not going to fly. Yeah. I mean, that's like taking that like black box and like making it real for people. Well, and people are making bets on their careers and how they're spending their budget. So you can't just show up and go like, here, go build this. And they go, yeah, we got this. Yeah. Right. So, so, (laughs) you know, it has to be highly collaborative. You're people bringing people along on that, that whole experience and you're giving them the artifacts and the language along the way. And there's a great book by a gentleman named Dan Hill called Dark Matter and Trojan Horses, a strategic design vocabulary. And it's about how you have to figure out how to bring design into the organization, but you can't just go at it, right? Like you can't just, you know, because everyone has these, you know, ideas of what design is and how you have to engage the the politics of an organization. That's the dark matter. Um, and so, the language that you use, the way that you describe things, the way you give pithy handles that are shorthand for people to all have the same mental model or the same idea over their head, that's super important. So we're very deliberate about how you use language and, and storytelling in that way. The second one is around uh, a process that we created back in the late 90s called envisioning. And this is a really interesting thing. So we have this great title that you know a, a whole bunch of my colleagues have called Envisioner. And it's and it sits right before um, detailed design, but right after kind of ideation. And once you know what you want to do, and the the notion there is to create the right experience through the customer lens without getting into that detailed design that allows someone to say, ah, you can't do that, or oh, that color's out of date, or we tried that model, you know, two years ago, or you know, legal never allowed the latch to be on that thing, right? And so what you're trying to do is, is put it in a customer-centered way through story that allows people to really understand and empathize with what you're trying to create. We teach at Harvard's Continuing Ed program, a, a design thinking course. One of the slides we have uh, is uh, for, for you know, executives and, and managers and businesses looking to apply design thinking. We show this picture of a chair and it's a sketch of a chair and it's got it's blue and white striped and it's got like, you know, like your standard like office chair, like, you know, five prong with the wheels, the casters and whatever else. And then it has like a, um, one of the two um, arm handles is down on its side. And we ask people, what is it and what's it for and everything? And people, you know, the, the class responds with like, well, you know, I don't really like stripes or like, oh, I like the color blue or, you know, 
oh, that, that chair doesn't look, it looks wobbly, right? There's all this feedback. Well, what do you think that chair's for? And they're like, oh, I don't know, like to create a little more space, the arm comes down or whatever. So we talk through that and then we show the envisioned version of it. And it's super sketchy, very blocky, very basic, no color. And it shows a mom sitting at a computer in the chair with that arm down and the little three-year-old baby, you know, toddler sitting next to her. And every single time people start smiling or you hear, ah, that's envisioning, that's storytelling, that's telling people it's not about the stripes on the chair yet. It's about what you're trying to do for people. Oh, I love that. I mean, you're, you're making me think, turning this whole thing on its head, which is, you know, coming at this topic being like, oh, design's so visual. Like, how are you going to talk about an audio? It's like, there's so much in a design that's not visual, right? That you're not, you can't see right in front of you, even though you're looking there at the chair and you have to build this narrative around it. Totally. Our storytelling in the prototyping phase is always super important. And we did a, a project where we reinvented the in-airport experience for Southwest Airlines. And you're, you're reminding me, so we prototyped it just with like basic chairs and some foam core and some like um, LCD displays. And, and the, the team just did this killer job of kind of creating what the immersive experience was going to look like. And then they walked customers and executives through to give them, you know, uh, experience, get feedback. But one of the things they did that I thought was so smart was they put speakers in and they blared airport noise. I mean, it's like a theater production, basically, right? Totally, totally. But that allowed people to also get in the context to understand if, sound was going to be a barrier to the experience. Um, so that's a great audio, you know, element. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I love it. It's like a play. Thank you so much. It's great to hear. I love the stories you guys tell. So it's great to have you here. Well, thanks. Listeners, if you'd like to learn more about John's work, check out continuuminnovation.com. And John, please stick around and we'll bring Debbie Millman into the conversation. If you like this podcast, check out our Kickstarter campaign for our latest magazine special issue. It's called The Policing Issue how one of the most powerful institutions functions by design, out later this spring. At the Design Museum, we're always working on projects that explore the transformative power of design, whether it's our educational programs, the Workplace Innovation Summit, our books. This magazine is no exception. We're tackling how institutions are defined by their design. With your support on Kickstarter, it will feature 16 artists, designers, researchers, and writers of color who will pay for their contributions to this special issue. The policing issue will explore the relationships between design and policing, from the physical objects currently in use by officers to the ways in which the design process perpetuates unjust practices rooted in policing, all the way to the design of the protest movement. Help us raise $20,000 between March 1st and March 30th to make this happen. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on our Kickstarter campaign. We're back and we're joined by our special guest, Debbie Millman. Debbie is no stranger to the podcast world. In fact, one could even venture to say that she invented bringing design stories to audio when she started her show in 2005 from a telephone modem in her office. Now, 16 years later, Debbie still hosts Design Matters and interviews a myriad of guests in a range of fields to chat about design and how they design their lives. In addition to her podcast, she has published six books, taught a class on Creative Live, and is editorial and creative director of Print Magazine. Debbie brings design stories to audiences through vivid storytelling and captivating interviews. Debbie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sam. It's really great to be here. Oh, it's an honor to have you. You've been an inspiration to our new nascent little baby show here. And so thank you for everything. Well, congratulations on making a new show. Thank you. So it's been about a year for us. As someone who's been doing this for 15, 16 years, what did you learn about a year in 
to design matters that you can share with us? Great question. Um, <laughs> I learned how to listen better. I remember um, after my second episode, I interviewed a friend of mine. And when I asked her after the interview how I did, I was expecting positive feedback. But she said, well... <laughs> It might be better if you listen to my answers before you ask another question. And so that really stopped me in my tracks and gave me a sense of, um, I really need to pay attention to what I'm doing in a more careful way. And then I was interviewing, I had an opportunity to interview Lawrence Wiener, the great, the legendary conceptual artist. And when I had the opportunity to interview him, he assumed that I was going to interview him in his studio because at that time, you know, it was year one. So there were, there was really no mass understanding of a podcast, what it was and how it happens. And as you mentioned, I was doing this on a telephone modem in my office and was hoping he'd come into my office, sit across from me at my desk with a telephone handset. And that's how we were going to record both of our audio feeds. And he said, well, so you'll come to my studio and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, I didn't want to say no to him because I didn't want him to then say, well, you know, take it or leave it, girly. Uh, <laughs> so I agreed to it and then called my my friend, the late, great Hellman Curtis, because I thought, well, maybe I'll just do a video of this as opposed to just audio. And we ended up making this beautiful, beautiful little film with, with Lawrence. But Hellman, as we were recording, said to me, in between takes, Debbie, you don't have to say mm -hmm, after everything he says. And that was a big learning as well. And that has stayed with me for now the last 16 years. On Thursday, it'll be the 16th anniversary of the first episode. So yeah. Congratulations <laughs> to you. Thank That's you. Amazing. Thank you. So what was that experience like as you're like telling these stories through audio, not only like in the interviews, but also like getting your show out there. And I mean, did you have to educate people about what a podcast was? Well, you know, the first four years I was doing it, it was also on a, an online radio network. And so people were much more comfortable with going to a link and listening. However, it was a live broadcast at the time. And so I had people calling in and radio commercials. It was a radio show. And Bryony Gomez-Palacio from, she was then one of the co-founders of Speak Up and now one of the co-founders of, of Brand New, the blog and the conference and so many other things that they do. Um, she recommended that I take the MP3 file that I, I had from the show every week and upload that to iTunes as if I were an indie musician. There wasn't a podcast section at the time because she wanted to be able to listen to it whenever she wanted to listen to it and not be locked into the time that it was live on the air. And then the weird midnight to 4 a.m. slot, it was repeating in once a week. So so that's really, I credit Bryony for that. And so I started doing that. The show launched February 4th, 2005 on Voice America. And then I believe in April, I moved it to iTunes. And then when 
they started a whole separate podcast section. I believe it was, I think, October of that year. And so then they started coming out with their first charts. And I remember I was number 85 on their top 100 um, podcasts. But I think there were only like 100 podcasts. So, so it was amazing. Like I remember looking at, they, they came out with their, I guess their first chart and I was so excited. I was like, oh my God, I'm number 85. And, and then I realized I don't, I didn't think that they're, they didn't have like the top hundred and then the next hundred the way they have now. It was, I think it was just it. So yeah, but still I have a screenshot of that. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) That's really cool. John and I talked a bit in the first segment about like design being such a visual thing, right? And then here you have audio, which is non-visual. And so how have you dealt with that over the years in terms of like covering these topics and stories with people, but not being able to actually show design? Um, well, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting question in that I've never really talked that much about the visual output of my guests. In fact, I probably talk least about that. I've been really fascinated and it's become clearer over the years as the show has evolved in the the sort of inner mind of, of the artist and not so much the external production. And so for me, I'm much more interested in how they became who they are. And because the show was something that was sort of offered to me by Voice America, and I had to really at the time convince them to allow me to do a show that was as much about design as it was about branding, which was their preference because of my background as a brand consultant and running a brand consultancy. I I sort of got the design part of it, really snuck that under the radar and then over the years, it was clear to me that I was much less interested in the design than the sort of matters part, <laughs> what matters. And, and so now I really seek to interview anybody that has any kind of creative practice about the practice, about what it is they do, about how they do it, their obstacles. I'm really interested in how somebody finds their voice how they overcome obstacles. You know, it's very much a, a, a psychological investigation of, of who they are as, as humans. Yeah, that's really cool. Which is, as John and I were talking, a big part of design, people. Mm-hmm. It makes, makes yeah. total sense. I'm curious, your backgrounds in design and brand, do you design your interviews? Or like what elements of design do you bring to your storytelling? I love that question. It's such an interesting one. I haven't really thought about it. Um, Well, I do spend a lot of time researching, hours and hours and hours, and and it's really a joy, but also just a tremendous amount of work. Um, I am interviewing Jenna Lyons on Thursday, the former creative director and president of J.Crew, and now she has a new television show on HBO called Stylish with Jenna Lyons, and I probably did... I would say, first of all, I had to watch every episode of her show, but that was fun. Um, I probably did, I don't know, 40 hours of research. And and that's in addition to like a full-time job at SVA and, you know, all kinds of other things that I'm up to. I'm trying to finish a book. And 
but it's a joy. The thing that happens when I'm doing the research is that I have that magical experience where time disappears. So three or four hours will go by and I won't realize it. And I'll have been going through wormhole and wormhole and wormhole online looking for anything that I could find. So I, I do script every interview. So I, I come to an interview, I start with, I don't feel like I've really done my job unless I have about 50 to 60 pages of notes. In Jenna's case, I had about 130. So that was even more sort of gargantuan. And then I try to cull that down. I sort of block the arc of the interview. And then it's probably like 20 or so pages of chunks of things that I want to talk about. And then ultimately end up with a script that is between seven and 10 pages generally. And that becomes my template for the interview. Because I've done so much research, the hope is that no matter which way they go, I can follow them into a conversation. So I, I say a good conversation is like a game of pool. You know, a good pool player not only wants to get the billiard ball into the pocket, they also want to leave the rest of the billiard balls on the table to get the next ball into the pocket. And so I try to do the same thing with my interviews where no matter where they go, I can follow them and it becomes a very a very learned conversation where they're sort of directing it and so they're the the sort of lead dancer but i'm following them with great respect because i can go wherever they take me and then be able to sort of direct it back if i need to to keep it on track because i do try to start with a very early origin story and then go through to current day and you know, the more well-known the person is, the more I have to cover. And I also want to be respectful to not just dwell. Dave Edgars once said to me, you know, I've done more than just my first book. <laughs> so that was another learning experience where I was like, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> right, let's talk about your current book. <laughs> um, so, so I want to make sure that I'm giving enough time to all of their accomplishments and so, so yeah, I have designed, I, I would say there's a very clear design to the arc of the way I like to interview people, but also enough space to, to be able to improvise. And then I try now to do visuals. You know, the Instagram has given me, you know, I didn't have a logo for the show for the first five years or more. I love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I was working in a branding consultancy Doing the show was in many ways the antithesis of branding for me at the time. It was this artistic pursuit. And while I did interview clients and did talk about branding a lot because of Voice America, even when I moved to Design Observer, I still had this sort of gray square with this the year of the show in it. Um, and then Armin Vitt helped me with um, the branding. And now on Instagram, I get to feature a photo of the guest and, you know, I use my handwritten typography around it. So that that's become a new look for the show in the last, I would say, six months <laughs> since COVID, because I used to do my show in person with everyone and we would take a, a photo and I would just use that. Now I can't do that anymore. I started first taking photos of the Zoom calls, but that that was just ugly. And so, um, so that's a new element that I'm I'm doing. Yeah, that's exciting. So, that brings it into the visual. That's cool. Yeah, I listened to Design Matters for for a, a long time, but when I went to your website and started realizing between 
author and educator and, you know, brand guru, et cetera. I was wondering, what do you see as your through line on those? And how do you decide what do I do next? Well, I've always, 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 even when I was in high school, been a, a kind of multitasker, I guess. I, I don't know that I would say polymath. The only thing I have in common with Leonardo da Vinci is that I can also write mirror backwards. The way <laughs> oh, could. that's cool. That is. It is really fun. But I think a lot of left-hand people can do it if they if they practice. And it's something that I practiced when I was a kid and fell sort of in love doing. I've always been really interested in a lot of different things. And early on in a career, it might be harder to do because you have to put so many hours into getting good at something. But because I'm like well into middle age at this point, well into that I think I've just put in a lot of time doing a lot of different things. And I didn't start doing Design Matters until I was in my 40s. So you can do the math. If I've been doing it for 16 years, you could figure easily figure it all out. So I've been doing a lot of things for a long time now. And so I think I've just put in a lot of hours doing a lot of different things. One thing I'm not actively doing anymore is corporate branding. I'm only doing branding now for nonprofits or causes or movements that I feel need my help and generally don't charge for it. I'm just doing it because I feel like it's important work. So that has opened up my day considerably, not running a global brand consultancy, which I did for over 20 years. And that really did take a lot of time. The interesting thing about that though, was that I had a lot of people that I was working with. So I was able to delegate a lot and delegating also helps with multitasking. I was not one of those people that felt like I had to do everything myself. I was very happy to delegate. Now it's a little bit harder because everything I do now is hands-on and I can't really get away with delegating much of what I do anymore. So Roxanne is always like, you need an assistant. You need an assistant. I'm like, but what would they do? What would they do? So Da Vinci, if you read Isaacson's biography, Da Vinci had like, you know, 30, 30 helpers at any time, right? So you could, you yeah. could have a whole bunch of helpers. Yeah, I do have um, Zachary Pettit is the editor in chief of Print Magazine. And he's also somebody that does work with me on design matters. So not not as much as he used to because he's so busy now. But yeah. I, I don't have him nearly as much as I want, but yeah, I do. I do need somebody, but I just don't know how to delegate tasks that take my heart to do them. Yeah, that's hard. Debbie, you've interviewed so many creative people at this point. So instead of asking you what you've learned about design, like what have you learned about people? Oh, that's that's one of my favorite questions because I love to share this answer. I've learned that everybody has self-doubt. Everyone, everyone, everyone questions their creativity, their legacy, their ability. And the only two people that I've interviewed over the years, over the 16 years now, and because I'm doing this book, I did the count. I've done, I think I've interviewed 430. 39 people, something like that. The only two people in that entire time of that list of people that just seemed really comfortable in their own skin and had no more Fs to give were Milton Glaser and Massimo Vignelli. And when I interviewed them, both, they both have, have, have left this earth. But when I interviewed them, they were well into their 80s. And they were just like, 
this is who I am. They, 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 they didn't feel the need to prove themselves anymore. They were really happy with their ability and with their output and the fact that they were still making work that they were proud of. And so I think, you know, it happens in your 80s. For anybody that isn't in their 80s, that's still like questioning good. It's probably better that you're questioning because that keeps you on a path of, of honesty. Mm -hmm. um, one of the greatest things I've ever been told in an interview was when I interviewed David Lee Roth, the former frontman of Van Halen. Because, you know, if, you, if you're old enough, you remember 1984 when the album came out and they were the biggest thing in the world. They were, they were it. They were it. They were bigger than the Stones at the time. Um, they were the biggest rock band on the planet. And I asked him what it felt like. What did it feel like to have the world in your hands at that moment? And he said, you have to really be careful when you get to the tippy, tippy, tippy top of the mountain, which is where they were. Because he said, it's always cold. You're often alone. And there's only one direction. You can only see in one direction. And I really appreciated hearing that because I'm constantly feeling like I haven't done enough. I want to do more. There's, there's so much I still want to do. I'm still afraid to do certain things. And I realized in that moment that I didn't need to peak and until the day before I die. Like that would be a good That'd life. That'd be perfect trajectory. Right? That would be that would be a good life. And and so I've I've have one notch more patience for myself than I did before then. Mm. Can you tell me about a time when design matters when that felt very true for you? Well, Josh Higgins, the one of the creative directors at Facebook is a very dear friend of mine and he worked with Doyle Young, the great typographer, and then Jessica Hish to visualize a statement that that I guess he had written. And it's beautiful and it's, um, you know, so it's design is everything, everything is design. And I kind of feel that way, that we're constantly designing our lives and our surroundings and our relationships and our music playlists. And so I think that everything is intentional if you want it to be. And if it's intentional, then there chances are there's there's some design behind it. This has been awesome, Debbie. Thank you so much for being here and sharing all of that. So nice to kind of get that background and we're huge fans of the show. Oh, my pleasure and congratulations. A year in, that's awesome. You have a great logo. It's a great show. Thank congratulations. You. Thank you very much. Listeners, check out Design Matters anywhere you listen to podcasts. And now it's time for our weekly dose of good design, where we each share an example of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I will kick us off. I've got a fun one. So this time I'm talking about the new Lego Botanical Collection. So these are Lego sets where you can build plants, flowers. They're really beautiful and gosh, there's just, I can't think of a better time to release <laughs> these sets when many of us are inside, it's cold. So it's a nice activity to build these. Uh, so there's a flower bouquet set where you build models of flowers. And then there's like a little bonsai tree set where you make a, a miniature tree. I was blown away. There's several hundred, I think almost 800 little Lego pieces in each set. And very cool. They're all made out of a new plant-based plastic derived from sugarcane which I mean, if you're gonna make Lego plants, then the pieces should be made out of plants. 
Uh, so as you know, I love to garden, but I pretty much focus solely on fruits and vegetables. I'm all about that output and then I'm eating by output, but I could totally see using these Lego sets to get more into flowers. The best part being you can build them and they never wilt. I mean, that's it. So I could also see it being really relaxing to build them. Anyway, check them out. We'll post a link on our episode page. All right, John, you are up. All right. So my my weekly dose of good design, uh, it's, a, it's a couple weeks old now, um, is uh, we're talking about New York Times and, and data visualization, but in the spirit of the power of design and storytelling, uh, New York Times and ProPublica had a tremendous piece on climate migration. Mm. Check it out. It's just an incredible story that really brings to life the impact of climate on the world and what that's going to mean for where people live and what the knock-on effects of that are, uh, which I just think is it, it, it's just really well done. I think it's a great example for me of the, the power of design to really help people understand, kind of have a mental model of big, mm. hairy challenges that are hard, hard to get. Uh, my, my wife's favorite example from, from, uh, times data visualization is one around, um, uh, the, how a sneeze goes into the world. And you think about that and, you know, people who don't, you know, don't want to wear masks or whatever. I feel like that kind of a visualization, if you see that it's hard mm -hmm. not to go like, yeah, okay, I see how this happens. So I, I just think all the, the visualizations they do can be really powerful and communicating. Totally. Thank you so much for being here. You're the best. Thank you guys so much. That's our show. I want to again thank John Campbell and Debbie Millman for joining us and thank you all for being here and listening to us. We'll post links to Design Matters and EPAM Continuum and some of the other resources and books we discussed today on our episode page. So check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. While you're there, be sure to check out our new book, which you can now order, Bespoke Bodies, The Design and Craft of Prosthetics. These are stories and designs that just it's an amazing book talking about the limb loss and prosthetic community. They were so amazing to work with. The stories are so rich and beautiful, both how designers work with people with limb loss and limb difference, but also how people with limb loss and limb difference became designers themselves and designed their own prosthetic devices. Check it out on our website and now you can order it. You can own it. You can always find the latest from Design Museum on social media. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum and we're on Instagram at design museum everywhere. You can also find us on LinkedIn and Facebook. And we have this awesome weekly email newsletter where you'll get the latest from Design Museum right to your inbox. You can sign up for that on our website. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Amor Yates with production assistance by Ryan Flom, additional research by Sophia Richardson, and editing support by Julia Christian. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for being here, and we'll talk again next week.